0: Well good morning everybody, or well, good evening as the case may be if you're in the United States listening to another United States Study Centre webinar. Thank you for joining us. My name's Simon Jackman. I'm Professor of Political Science at the University of Sydney and the Chief Executive Officer of the United States Study Centre. And the United States Study Centre and the University of Sydney stand on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, part of the Aura Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Um, today, I'm so thrilled by the fact that we've got Phil Rucker, uh, who is um, Bureau Chief, White House Bureau Chief for the Washington Post, um, joining us from um, Washington, where it's uh, the Monday night of Memorial Day weekend. And thank you, Phil, for uh, putting on a tie and jacket on a, on a Monday night. Um, which is not that dissimilar from from what you often do <laughs> this time of the evening <laughs> on a weeknight. Uh, Phil, of course, um, in addition to being White House bureau chief at the Post, um, is a contributor uh, on NBC and MSNBC. Um, which, if you look at just the right places of the internet, you can see Phil, um, a, a frequent contributor to MSNBC's uh, evening coverage after a hard day at the White House, breaking news and going on to, to uh, further the story uh, uh, on MSNBC. Um, Phil, of course, though, um, is the author of um, a, a book, uh, co-author of a book uh, with Carol uh, Leonig. I hope I'm pronouncing Carol's name correctly, um, but a, a very stable genius. Um, and, and the subtitle's significant, and, I, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Donald J. Trump's Testing of America. Uh, Phil um, and a team of Post reporters uh, are winners of the Pulitzer, uh, America's uh, most prestigious uh, award for journalism, and a George Polk award uh, for their reporting on on Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Uh, Phil's been at the Post now uh, since 2005 and has covered all sorts of uh, ends of American politics, Congress, the Obama White House, and, and, and both the 2012 and 2016 presidential campaigns. And he is a graduate of Yale University um, in history, uh, where he got to know um, our own Charles Edel, um, who has uh, an, an insignificant role in, in bringing us Phil today. Phil, thank you for being with us.
1: Thank you so much for that uh, introduction, and it's great to be with you all. Um, it's a little bittersweet because Carol and I were both scheduled to be at the Sydney Writers Festival uh, in May and, and taking a tour through Australia uh, to talk about our book and unfortunately uh, those plans got scrapped as I know everybody else's travel plans are scrapped but here we are uh, in quarantine and with the with the magic of technology uh, we're able to have this interesting discussion uh, from a world away so I, I'm really grateful to be here and, and glad for everyone. Who's taking the time to listen and participate?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right, Phil. We we um, you know, we, we knew you were uh, supposed to be out here for the Writers Festival, um, but we're delighted to be able to do this. And, and indeed, yeah, you know, turning adversity into a virtue. The the our, our reaching out to people <clears throat> such as yourself really amazing. that technology allows us uh, to do that. Phil, I wonder, before we get into the substance, I I just feel it would be appropriate to briefly reflect on the fact that the United States is coming up on a spectacularly grim milestone of of potentially sometime this week. um, Expectations are that the the fatality count in the United States will will, will reach 100,000. And you're there in Washington, DC, which remains a very active center for the virus and its transmission. Um, It was Memorial Day weekend there in the United States. Uh, Many Americans, expatriates living here in Australia, but many, many Australians in themselves know what a significant holiday that is in the United States, the official start of summer. I'm wondering before we get into the politics and the book if you wouldn't mind sharing with us a few reflections on life in D.C. at the moment, particularly on this Memorial Day of of 2020.
1: Yeah, um, I'm I'm glad you raised that. You know, Washington, D.C. is is a metro area, not as big as New York, but uh, we happen to be currently uh, among the top metro areas in the country for the spread of coronavirus. The city remains largely on lockdown. Uh, Schools, businesses, Uh, Other gathering places are shut. And Memorial Day weekend here, as across America, is a time when a lot of people get together and have barbecues and spend time outdoors with their families and a lot of big gatherings. And we just didn't see that uh, this weekend. It's really quite sad. Um, I took a couple hours to walk through Rock Creek Park, which if you're familiar with Washington, is the beautiful park that uh, divides the city. And there were all kinds of people there having picnics, but social distancing, you know, at six or eight feet apart on their picnic blankets. And uh, it was quite a sight. I've never seen it quite like that. Um, But we're, you know, making it through and hopefully the numbers will go down. The the milestone of 100,000 deaths is really significant. This is a number uh, that the president himself Right. you know, said repeatedly, he didn't think we would ever reach, uh, you know, certainly there are experts who believe if we'd uh, taken some stronger measures earlier, uh, as Australia did, for example, we would not be near, uh, near this grim milestone. But here we are, uh, you know, we're probably going to hit 100,000 this week, it will probably continue to climb uh, over the next several months as, as the virus continues to spread uh, in this country. And it's worth also keeping in mind that public health Uh, experts, epidemiologists believe that that's not the real death total, that there were many deaths uh, from COVID-19 that have not been counted uh, as deaths from COVID-19. So we very well may have lost more than 100,000 Americans so far. We just don't have that raw number right now.
0: Right. Um, Grim times, um, but with massive political consequences that we'll we'll, we'll get into presently, Phil. Um, i want to see, I want to go to the book though and i'll I'll hold it up one more time
1: <laughs> there it is keep, keep holding it
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a very stable genius uh Donald j trump's testing for america um and um just a, a a take i mean just the way you take us back through that recent history uh the way that you know, books written by workaday day journalists, people who are there filing the stories day by day. There's all, you know, the first draft of history and all that. <laughs> um, but it's all there in great detail. But I want to talk about the frame uh, that you've put around it with the incredibly provocative title, the, the, the President's Own Words. And, Phil, this is something we get asked about all the time. I'm sure you do too in the United States. But at the United States Study Centre here in Australia, Is Trump a genius? Um, Now, I don't know that he's a genius in the sense if you could hand him a Rubik's cube and he'd solve it in ninety. That sort of the word, but of the word genius. But in the early going of your book, you cite two associates of the president who interrogate that proposition at least. And and you know my own take on it is he's perhaps not a mathematical genius, but he is the first person since Dwight Eisenhower to be elected president of the United States without having held prior elected office and recall that Dwight Eisenhower had a pretty impressive CV by 1952. Um, He blasted the rest of the Republican field off stage, including senators and Republican party royalty took over the Republican party he made use of social media better than the Democrats who are meant to be the teched-up party um, after the Obama for America campaigns and, and and the amount of money Hillary Clinton had to spend. He wins the Electoral College despite losing the popular vote by two percentage points. And I think most importantly, through his presidency, he's just driven the media agenda in a way that we haven't seen in our lifetimes. So is there some three-dimensional chess game or some master... Game of go being played here, or is it just mad improvisation from a guy and a team who didn't expect to win? Where do you land on that one, Phil?
1: Yeah, um, that's a lot there. I would yeah, start by so. <laughs> by answering the last part of your question there, which is you know, I don't see this as a three dimensional chess game. There's no grand strategy uh, at play here with President Trump. It's, it's sort of an improvisational uh, move from day to day to day. Uh, where the president is making decisions based on his instincts and his whims and based on the media uh, cycle all around him. And, and in some days, it feels like a, a sort of hour-by-hour hour quest for political survival. He just wants to live to the next news cycle and try to win in the short term uh, without a ton of foresight that goes into the broader strategy. Now, he certainly has uh, some genius characteristics, uh, and you pointed out some of them, his political instincts, are incredible, or at least had been within the Republican Party. I think it's a real test whether that's going to hold up uh, this November in the general election. He is behind in virtually every poll. Um, But he also has a a real um, unique ability to communicate and galvanize his core supporters uh, day in and day out to understand what they want to hear from him and then to deliver it uh, and to satisfy them. And and I would say that's a genius characteristic, but we right. chose this title. This is of course the president's own description for himself, a very stable genius. It's something he first said uh, back his first year of the presidency when there were a lot of doubts, there was a national discussion underway about his psychological fitness right. for office, whether he had the mental acuity required to be the commander in chief. And he defended him by himself by saying, I'm a very stable genius. And what Carol and I found we, I mean, we wanted to use this title to stress test his own definition against the accounts of the you know, 200 administration officials and other advisors and friends we interviewed for the book. And almost all of them made clear to us that he is neither stable nor a genius. Okay. Uh, he, he is erratic uh, in his state. We see that every day, just looking at his Twitter feed. Uh, but he also doesn't have a lot of knowledge. He has very little expertise about the subjects he's making decisions on. And we can get into this later in the discussion, but he, he, he does not have an aptitude for retaining information from his briefings or really a patience uh, to sit through them. So he's much more making gut decisions based on the media environment than God. based on uh, cold concrete facts.
0: Right. And, and I guess we'll get to this a little bit later too. So while perhaps a, a great sort of attribute to run as an insurgent outsider, perhaps not best suited for governing, and the the point we'll come to later, perhaps Phil, um, running as an incumbent, seeking re-election, and managing the greatest public health crisis, potentially uh, in a century, Um, certainly in a century, um, and perhaps even bigger. And the
1: greatest economic crisis (laughs) in in the past century. So he's got three crises on his hands right now.
0: Um, And I guess that almost answers the next question I wanted to put to you, Phil, but when you wrote the book, uh, and, and that's to do with the subtitle, the, the Testing of America, when you wrote the book, yeah. COVID-19, we weren't talking about, right? The, the book really takes us up to the end of the Mueller investigation. Um, and the next day, of course, the Ukraine <laughs> adventure starts. But but, yeah. but COVID-19 and its economic fallout were not on the table. And clearly, I think they are tests for the president. But I want to just extract away just a little bit. Phil, give the opportunity to swing for the bleachers here a little bit. And that is, the book is very much blow by blow, um, uh, appointment by appointment, um, uh, an incredibly detailed chronicling of, you know, the transgressive nature of of Trump, the way he confounds expectations about the way presidents ought to behave, interact with leaders, Congress, their staff, journalists. But just extracting back from that, what exactly for the Republic is being tested by Trump? What is at stake in this test?
1: You know, virtually everything uh, is being tested and has been tested by this presidency. Uh, our morality and values uh, as Americans have been tested uh, by his rhetoric, by the way he chooses to pit different constituencies and different groups of people against each other. Uh, the the democracy itself is being tested by uh, the way he is going after institutions like the Department of Justice, by the way he's expanding uh, his view and role of presidential power. Uh, you know, our, our, the world order that America helped build uh, more, nearly a century ago and, and has maintained over all these years is being tested by the way the president is just starting with traditional alliances and making new ones and, and reaching out to dictators and forming uh, a friendship with Kim Jong-un, for example. Uh, and, and so many other aspects of American life and American sort of civic uh, civic life is, has been tested uh, by this president and continues to be tested. I mean, he's, he's even waging war on truth and fact and reality and, and creating uh, for his supporters an alternative reality to some degree, um, where the facts are different and 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 you see that in in Fox, on Fox News channel and in other uh, social media realms where you know the president will declare something and it is so, even though it, it doesn't hold up to the truth and and that is also testing America. so there there are tests in many ways, and that's why we chose that subtitle of course.
0: So So next question, Phil, is America passing the test?
1: I think that's not for me to de- decide. Uh, you know, we've got an important election coming up in November. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we'll all be able to evaluate after that election whether, wh- how America came out through this test. I mean, is, is, are, are, are the changes that Trump has tried to uh, to put in place in this country accepted by uh, the majority of our voters? We're gonna have to see um, it's their choice. I mean, Americans chose to have him as, as the president Four years ago, and you know, if if he gets a second term, I think a lot of um, a lot of the norm busting, a lot of the changes to our, our life and and structure of our government uh, could well change for the long haul because he's going to have a mandate and, and have another four years to enact it. Um
0: I want to ask, is this different? I mean, I can remember during the W administration. That yeah. facts don't matter. That uh, that the Bush administration, the W of W, is waging a war against the truth. That um, that with uh, an assist from partisan media, um, the Republican base was being treated to uh, a perspective of, of the world. Um, that you know, I think that was when the the magic words "reality" has a well-known liberal bias. Um, uh, you yeah, know, was jokingly, you know introduced to the American sort of commentariat. Um, what's different this time in your view?
1: You know, I I don't want to dismiss the, the ways in which the Bush administration misled the public because there were some that were profound, especially around the, the origins of the Iraq War and, and WMD and all of that. But on the whole, and over the course of those eight years, it felt like much more political spin than uh complete fabrication and lies uh which we see day in and day out from trump and his white house and you know there was no such thing during the bush years as the washington post fact checker (laughs) chronicling all the misstatements and lies of the president but there is now and and trump has hit an extraordinary number (coughs) excuse me that's all right go ahead yeah um
0: i want to sort of talk about i mean For Australians that don't know it, and and Mara and team here in Sydney, if we could flip to the third slide deck, uh, the third slide in the deck there, uh, just some screenshots of um, uh, two of Phil's recent um, um, big stories. Um, uh, And in particular, where Phil um, has put a question to the president that where the answer went on to lead global news frankly um uh, for for the next days if not weeks and and of course it was phil that asked the question in the white house briefing room that led to trump then ripping and and finally getting to this observation or the speculation about the uh, medical virtues of detergent and ultraviolet light inside People's bodies, and then more, more recently, um, um, again, a, a question from Phil um, to the president about what exactly are the um, <laughs> uh, are the crimes that constitute Obama Gate? Um, and if we could, if we could just drop the, that slide now and come back to us, Mara. Thanks. Um, that's great. Um, Phil, I just want to ask. Trump, in response to those questions, certainly the second one, uh, comes after you and the paper and the post, personally, um, um, in, in pretty nasty terms. He he calls journalists nasty. He calls them rude. He's called journalists enemies of enemies of the people. I just want to ask a personal question. First of all, <laughs> how are you dealing with that? I mean, I I can't help but think someone as visible as yourself going up against the president of the United States with 50 million, whatever it is, Twitter followers, it must have an impact on your day-to-day life and, and those of your colleagues as well.
1: It does. Um, you know, I, I, It doesn't really matter how I feel about it personally, yeah, because no, I, uh, I feel like I uh, have a job to do and right. uh, am doing that. You know, it's not pleasant. I, it, you don't want to have the president calling you names. And and by the way, the list of names he's called me goes longer than what you yeah. just said. He, he's had any number of, of insults over the years. And he has with other reporters as well. And at this point, it's just it kind of comes with the territory and is a part of the job. And I've adapted and I'm used to it. Um, but it's unsettling and it's ugly. And, you know, when he tags you on Twitter... Uh, my mentions are ugly and you just don't want to look at what people are saying back for the next 48, 72 hours. Uh, we've had security issues uh, oh, where the Washington Post has had to try to, you know, find ways to to protect me from some threats uh, from Trump supporters on email, and it, it's just a very ugly environment uh, to be a journalist in this country covering this president. hes I should point out, by the way, he's particularly uh Discussing uh, in his treatment of women journalists, yeah. um, he has gone after women and, and in particular, uh, a few women of color uh, in a in a really ugly way. Yeah, quite uh, recently. And, and, uh, yeah, yeah, and and yeah. turned his supporters on them. But you know, this is all part of a political strategy for Trump. He wants to have a war with the media. He wants to right. to create a foil um, out of us. And actually, when the cameras are not off, and like I've interacted with him behind the scenes off the record in a smaller setting, he's actually quite uh, charming and charismatic and solicitous of my approval and cracking jokes and wanting to be my friend and my buddy. And that's how he is with other reporters too. And so, so much of the, the insult, uh, kind of nastiness is, is for the cameras, it's part of the show uh, that Trump has tried to create around his White House.
0: That's, an, that's incredible um thanks for sharing that observation i we've heard reports of that from um from other journalists um but to hear it firsthand um that's remarkable um let me ask another journalism question though how do you perhaps personally as a you know as bureau chief um but uh, you know not an op-ed columnist right A, a a reporter um yeah but but perhaps the post more institutionally Because it's something we struggle with as a study center, as a collection of scholars. How do you dispassionately, objectively analyze, or in your case, report on Trump when he's precisely so transgressive and and contra to norms? How, where does does the line between straight reporting and commentary analysis or op-edding start to does that inevitably blur with a president who's so out of the ordinary?
1: You know, it 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 always blurs a little bit, uh, regardless of what principle or subject you're covering as a journalist. But I found that you know it's it's important to maintain objectivity, and I have in my reporting. And it's really important to be fair to Trump and to the White House. But that doesn't mean that we uh, you know, do sort of the both sides uh, game in journalism, where you have he said, she said throughout an article. I mean, we can call things as we see them. If Trump is lying, we'll say so. Right. Um, you know, if Trump is acting irrationally or erratically, uh, we write about that and we say that in the top of the story in very strong and clear language. I think the difference is um, what I've tried to do as as a reporter, at the, as the White House bureau chief at the Post, is to... Um, to describe what I see and what I know based on reporting uh, as opposed to forming a judgment about it or as opposed to issuing some sort of call to action. You know, I don't have a dog in this fight. I don't. It, it doesn't matter to me who wins the election. I'm here to cover it and importantly to try to explain uh, what's happening behind the scenes that we don't know about, uh, what is informing the decisions that Trump is making, what are the things going on in the government that he's trying to cover up uh, and, and prevent the public from knowing, and that's the pursuit every day. And his behavior, frankly, plays out in public, and we can all see with our own eyes that he's, you know, tweeting a hundred times in all kinds of crazy tweets. And, and we'll write about that as him having a, a crazy, erratic moment. We're not going to, you know, sugarcoat it in the right. interest of objectivity because so much of it is so plain and, and so in front of us all the time.
0: Um- so you just used the word both-siderism. Um, it's a little bit of an inside baseball um, term. Sorry
1: for the jargon. <laughs> that, that's
0: okay. That's okay, because I did want to bring it up. Um, okay. I'm just wondering, you know, do you think, I mean, the New York Times is getting beaten up a little bit on, on this one, and, and the post is being held out, you know, in, in, in a lot of commentary as less going down the road of both-siderism. And is this, you know, on the other hand, people at times will say, you know, we're not the party of the lawyer, We're not the newspaper of the loyal opposition. This is not the United Kingdom in the 19th century, or yeah. early 20th century. I'm just wondering, what do you make of that debate? I know it's a distraction, perhaps from getting on with the job of day to day journalism. But I've got to ask you. How real is that? Is this something that you you and your journalistic colleagues are, are tracking and, and it's in the back of your heads as you're doing your jobs every day? Is, it, is the times getting beat up on? I'm just wondering if you give us sort of your view of that debate. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it is a real debate, uh, and you see it play out on social media all the time. I I don't participate in that debate. I I in fact I try to tune it out a little bit. I just right. do my job and and right. try to do my stories with integrity. I will say that neither the Times nor the Washington Post um, are the newspapers of the resistance. Um, right. You know, we've we've become more popular in, insofar as we have more subscribers in the Trump era because people want the information that we're uncovering, but it's not because we're warriors uh, taking on a president. That's not how we see our jobs. Uh, And I I certainly hope that's not how how readers and subscribers uh, think of us. Um, That said, the the whole issue of both-siderism is, alive and well and and frequently debated in the public square and i try yep. to stay as far away from it as i can uh because i'm doing my job as a journalist i'm not a media critic and uh you oh, know fair, there are professors enough. of media who can get into all that fair, but fair enough fair enough
0: <laughs> we'll move on um look um i want to start the turn to 2020 and 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 the pandemic and the economic downturn as well look just yes. in the last couple of days and perhaps it's been around for longer but but a few journalists have been using a great form of words. Um, that Trump himself is leading the resistance to his own government, um, um, with with calling on people, to, you know, the liberate tweets, um, sort of a, a reprise, if you will, of the populist outsider shtick motif that helped him win in 2016. Um, what is the Trump argument for re-election in 2020 in the face of 100,000 and quite likely more fatalities and this economic downturn from inside the white house, what will be the argument they take to the American people?
1: The, you know, it's still developing and evolving of course, because the argument before COVID-19 was going to be, you know, boom, boom, boom economy, uh, keep it going, keep the president in place. That of course is not an argument anymore. Uh, and, and, the the campaign pitch at the moment has almost nothing to do with the coronavirus. It's right. almost as if Trump wants to wipe away uh, COVID nineteen, not have any discussion about the pandemic, and instead he's focused on the economy. And the argument we hear from his team on the economy is, you know, he built it, he'll rebuild it. It's a little bit not true because <laughs> the, the economic recovery in America began in the Obama administration. Uh, it accelerated in the Trump administration. Um, but Trump didn't build this economy from scratch. That said, uh, you know, he he is claiming credit for the jobs that have been created and for the gains uh, reached on on Wall Street in these past three years. And his argument is, you know, he was able to to stimulate that growth in the first three years of his presidency. He can get he he has the skills and the policies to get America out of it. And it's coupled with another argument they're trying to make, which is that, you know, all of the forgotten men and women, that's the, the phrase Trump used for the voters who turned out in 2016, uh, the, the Reagan Democrats, the working class white people who had not been active in politics, um, he's still fighting for them. And so he's using the, the contrast between uh, the, the public health officials and the government and, and sort of the bureaucracy, the bureaucratic elites in Washington Uh, in order to drive home that message that even though he's president, even though he's sitting in the White House, even though all these people in the government report to him, he's still thinking about the little guy out there uh, in the country and is fighting for him. Uh, All of that being said, it's an incredibly challenging environment for him. And, and, you know, there's no sugarcoating the reality for Trump. And he knows it, which is that he's losing right now to Joe Biden uh, in virtually all of these battleground states that he's going to have to win and he really needs to have a political turnaround uh, in order to, to to win re-election in the fall.
0: Yeah, I, I did want to, that was going to be my last question before I in, invite some other questions uh, from from other people we've got with us today. But um, but Phil, um, just on the polls, um, they are pretty bleak for Trump right now. We're still 160 odd days out from the yeah. election. Um, some Some reporting a couple of weeks ago that Trump erupting at his campaign manager, Brad Pascal, yeah. who brought in the research and, and apparently it was reported, um, might've been you guys, For I, I forget who reported it, but uh, there is no effing way I'm losing to Biden, um, was the response of the president apparently. Um, are these sort of bleak poll numbers heightening the freneticism, that crazy improvisational tempo uh, from 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 Trump at the moment, you have an observation
1: on yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, just this past weekend, the president has been uh, just all over Twitter with all kinds of conspiracy theories and attacks and insulting Jeff Sessions, his former Attorney right. General. Right. Um, going after Biden. I mean, he seems to be uh, just under siege and and kind of all over the place and. And I know from my own reporting the last few weeks that that is uh, almost entirely because he is losing in this election and he doesn't know what to do about it. Uh, and he has no control over the pandemic. He has yeah. no control over the economy. And he's just feeling very much um, adrift at the moment. You know, the, the, what we're seeing happening politically and just in the last week or so is a really sharp negative turn. Um, from the Trump team. And I think that's indicative of their strategy for the general election between now and November, which is to just annihilate Biden as best they can and and have a nasty, divisive campaign that that really polarizes the electorate and, and turns off enough voters away from Biden that, that Trump can end up winning. Um, we've seen him just in the last few days try to exploit um, a, a comment that Biden made about African-American mm-hmm. voters to, seemingly to try to suppress the turnout of black voters in November and and we're going to probably see that continue in the months ahead
0: yeah I mean there's an awful lot to be said about the strategy and um you know uh his hostility to vote by mail um yeah um um, anyway that's enough from me for the time being I want to invite uh Bruce Wolpe non-resident fellow here at the U.S. Study Center. We're going to run a little experiment here. This is the first time ever we've, we've done a video question. Um, if, we could, if we could bring Bruce onto the call. Um,
2: okay. And cueing Bruce. Over to that you, Bruce. All right. Thank you. Uh, Phil, thanks so much. again. Thank you, Simon. Phil, thanks so much again for joining us. And next time we'll have you yeah, in you. Australia in person, which would be absolutely great. I would love that. <laughs> um, I also want to say, after reading, I, I, was, I was privileged to review your book for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age. And after I read the book, I went back to All the President's Men in the Final Days to read it. And I concluded my review by saying, after reading a very stable genius and then revisiting those two books, and, they, and at times in American history, it's the Washington Post and its journalism that have stepped up, not to wage war against the president, but to talk about values fundamental to American democracy. And I said, after after reviewing those rereading those books. Uh, we have seen the likes of those reporters again, and their names are Phil Rucker and Carol Lenick. And um, I commend the book to everyone. And I hope this boosts some sales for you here in Australia <laughs> before the week is out.
1: Well, thank um, you. It was a, it was a very uh, generous review. And, and that particular line that you just cited uh, tickled me and Carol when we saw it a few months ago. So thank you. It's very great. nice of you.
2: Thank you. Um, I, I want to ask, following on Simon's question, I really want to ask about Trump's stamina. I mean, here's a guy, yeah. he gets up in the morning, okay, he does TV, tweets, and all that, but then he can have a cabinet meeting, and he's on television for two hours. He can have a meeting in the, uh, uh, in the East Room with uh, uh, visiting people, and that goes for an hour, and it's all on television. Then he can get on a plane and go to Michigan and have a meeting in a plant, and that's on tel- television. When he was doing rallies, he would talk for, uh, when he did his briefings on COVID, 90 minutes, two hours at the podium, his stamina just seems amazing to me. I mean, that here's a guy who's pounding his message and and taking care of his enemies like 20 hours a day. What's your sense of his stamina? Is he a stronger physically candidate than he was in 2016?
1: Well, I don't know. um, I don't know much about his physical health, uh, but he he clearly has stamina to, to make it through these very long public appearances, which by the way, are longer than Um, we're used to seeing from American presidents or, frankly, from other political figures. Uh, That said, his day is very limited in its structure. I mean, most presidents would come down from the residence and arrive in the Oval Office around 8 or 9 a.m. to get their intelligence briefing and begin the day. Trump comes down around 11.30 or 12 noon. Uh, He does not have the patience for, uh, for lengthy meetings. He usually spends a number of hours during the day. Once he comes down at the Oval Office in a little private dining room, uh, just off the Oval Office, where he watches cable television uh, on a big screen in there and various advisors will come in and watch CNN or MSNBC or Fox News with him. Uh, so, you know, we see these public appearances and he has incredible stamina to be up there on stage for so long, but it's not as if in private, he's doing uh, hour after hour of, of intense, Serious meetings. There's a lot of leisure time uh, in the White House, and uh, you know the, the the phrase for it is actually executive time, uh, which is the way it's coded on the president's schedule. That's actually a scoop from a from an Australian reporter uh, here, Jonathan Swan, who's been yeah. tearing it up uh, on the White House beat. Anyhow, I don't know about his person his physical health, but he has incredible time at the podium, but uh, you know a lot of, a lot of downtime as well.
2: Okay. My next qu- my other question is on foreign policy and Putin. Um, I, and I take it, we, you don't have a scoop on, there have been two solo meetings that Trump has had with Putin, one in Helsinki and one in uh, Hamburg. And it was just with translators. And in one meeting, he took the notes from the US translator and said, I'm taking these and we don't know what happened. And I take it, you don't know what, <laughs> otherwise he would have been on page one as to what occurred there. But what is the Trump-Putin relationship and what does Trump want out of that relationship? Yeah, can
1: I, I just want to stress first how unusual it is that, that the American president would be meeting with the Russian president one-on-one with only a translator. You know, U.S. presidents almost always historically have met with foreign counterparts uh, with a number of aides there, in part to take detailed notes on behalf of the U.S. government, in part to, uh, you know, offer offer guidance and input in those meetings. It is really strange for Trump to have insisted that those meetings with Putin be private Um, and and then to tear up the translator's notes afterwards indicates that he did not want anybody uh, in his own government, did not trust anybody in his own government to know what was discussed between them. Um, And there's, there have been now two years of commentary trying to guess what the two of them (laughs) discussed and we've still not figured out exactly what it was. Um, So I won't add to that now, but I will say the relationship is really, um, really, important and, and interesting, you know, Trump came into office admiring Putin, uh, admiring his strength as a leader, admiring the fact that he's been able to remain in command of his country for so many years and uh, wanting to have a bromance with him, wanting wanting for Putin to be his Margaret Thatcher, to, you know, have that, to, to be buddies and went about from even before taking office, trying to cultivate a friendship with Putin in fact, in, in the, the book, A Very Stable Genius, we uh, have a scene where, where Trump is at Trump Tower in New York during the transition phase. So after the election and before the inauguration, interviewing a candidate to become secretary of state. And he sort of interrupted the candidate's train of thought and, and turned to his other aides in the room and said, when can I meet Putin? Can, can we meet with Putin before the inauguration? And he had to be told that, no, that would be very inappropriate. Um, but it just speaks to his desire to have this relationship. And, um, you know, he, he admires Putin despite uh, advisors like Rex Tillerson uh, telling him that Putin is a former KGB operative. Putin is playing you. Uh, he's trying to manipulate you uh, to take advantage of the United States and advance Russia's interests. And, and Trump doesn't want to believe that. Um, but that is what some of his advisors in the government have tried to uh, instill with him.
2: Thank you so much, Phil. All the best to you. Thank you.
1: Thanks,
0: Bruce. Uh, that was terrific. Our experiment worked well, and and, um, and those observations, Bruce, uh, reflecting on um, the review of the book and you know the significant role the post has played um, over generations of American politics are uh, extremely. Well made and, and, and a great thing for US Study Center a conversation to be uh, taking note of. Thanks for that. Um, we've covered a lot of uh, ground uh, in, in terms of questions that people submitted ahead of time. Phil, I'm just sort of reviewing them now, um, particularly sort of how journalists such as yourself and The Post perhaps as an institution are reacting. But there's a lot of questions now um, about how if this freneticism we were just talking about a little bit earlier is sort of where a sign of where Trump is now, with his back against the wall 160 days out, what might it look 45 days out? What might it look like 30 days out? And indeed, what might it look like three days after an election? <coughs> also, the dispute in question, have, I'm wondering if you've got any observations about, based on your observations of Trump to date, how realistic some of the more dire prospects that some of our Australian questioners are sort of putting into their questions about things like that, October surprise, wag the dog, right through to disputing the result and Trump turning his base out, um, either to disrupt the elections or, or the certification process or whatever it might be
1: yeah so um that's a great a great question, and a really important topic. I am not in the predictions business, so I'm not going to predict what I think is going to happen, but what I can tell you is based on sort of what we've seen happen before when the President is in these moments of personal crisis and you know how that informs how this may shake out and the bottom line is it could be very ugly uh, donald trump is is someone who before taking office and as president, uh, when he's up against a wall and when he feels like he's uh, losing or, or losing control of a situation, he lashes out, he acts irrationally, uh, he can act dangerously. And I think there's good reason to believe that you know if the trend lines in this election continue and he feels the squeeze uh, come fall, that that it could become very ugly. And, and what does ugly mean? Well, ugly could mean, you know, making up conspiracies about Biden, uh, doing sort of the, the nastiest, most divisive campaigning that we could imagine. But ugly could also mean hurting our democracy and our faith in our democracy in, in America. And what I mean by that is, you know, casting doubt about the legitimacy of the election, laying the groundwork to challenge the results of the election refusing, for example, to concede if it is a close, um, a close result after election day, refusing uh, to, to you know, do the sort of peaceful transition of power, things that we have seen losing presidents do historically through time. I don't know, I have no reporting to indicate that he's decided he's going uh, to act that way, um, but it would not surprise me based on, on the way he's acted in past crises. And I think it's very, um, it's certainly a subject that a lot of Democrats are talking about uh, in the U.S. right now. And it's a pretty frightening prospect for our democracy if that that happens.
0: Yeah. Um, And and fair enough about not being in the prediction business. (laughs) Wise counsel. Um, I
1: I would get in trouble if I actually predicted what would happen.
0: Yeah, right. Not your job. Yeah. Um, I I want to um, um, turn briefly... Um, uh, to you know, we we've been talking a lot about U.S. domestic politics, um, but the way Australia interacts with the United States, of course, is 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 not just as a spectator of its domestic politics, but as an ally, um, as a uh, as a as a country you know, deeply impacted by American foreign policy. And one thing we at the U.S. Study Center are uh, uh, tracking extremely closely. Is, is the way China as is an issue will play a role in this election? The way already um, the president has attempted uh, to wedge uh, Biden on the issue of China, um, particularly given uh, painting China as a as a bad actor, um, in, with the pandemic raging, uh, serves serves a number of political purposes. There, I just wondering if you could give us some reflections on the state of play on China as an issue at the moment um, inside Washington. And to the extent to which you're able, we have a sense that there's a fairly robust bipartisan consensus about China as a problem for the United States. But in recent weeks and with the election campaign and China becoming, is that going to come under some pressure uh, that, that Trump will successfully open up some daylight between Republicans and Democrats on, on foreign policy towards China?
1: It's, it's a great question and it's, it's unclear at this moment sort of how this all evolves because we're right in the middle of it. Um, as you pointed out, I think if Trump had his wishes, he would create that daylight uh, between his party or at least his, his own worldview. Um, and and that of the Democrats when it comes to China, the the records are not incredibly helpful for him that for him in that regard, uh, just because of you know he had he had done so much of his own outreach to China in the first few years of the presidency, and of course um, had been working on that trade uh, that trade agreement with China in in the most recent months before the pandemic. But the pandemic has presented uh, Trump what he seems to think is a pretty good political opportunity to drive a wedge on China. And we're hearing him increasingly talk about uh, the virus originating in China, um, speculating that there may have been malfeasance on the part of of the Chinese on on the lab in Wuhan, for example, uh, blaming Chinese officials for not doing more to contain uh, the virus and suggesting that it never should have reached uh, the shores of, of the United States the way it had. And, you know, he's not taken the leap yet to to kind of somehow hold up Biden as responsible for that. But he has made a lot of uh, allusions and comments about Biden as being softer toward China than Trump. And, you know, there are some elements of, of Biden's record in the Obama administration to support that. It was Obama, of course, who did the pivot to Asia uh, and wanted to, you know, foster better relations with China, make... Uh, our sort of Americans or orientation in geopolitics shifted uh, to the East and the Trans-Pacific mm-hmm. Partnership. And mm-hmm. we can get into all of that. But, cool. um, you know, there's a lot to play with there for Trump. He's not quite crystallized the message, uh, but he's getting there. And I know his advisors seem to think that this is a winning issue for him. Uh, and I suspect we're going to hear a lot more about Biden and China uh, as the summer, you know, takes shape.
0: Um and, and, and Phil, I can't let our time together go without reminding our listeners that among the many stories you've broken in the Trump White House, it was the, the, the so-called Trump Turnbull phone call. Oh, um,
2: yes.
0: What, <laughs> remember that? <laughs> A long time ago now, it seems. But um, back in uh, January of 2017, and I certainly remember where I was, as does everybody at the U.S. Study Center um, at the time. Um, um, there was the immediate sort of readout from the call, but then a couple of weeks later, you guys broke the story, got, got hold of the transcript. Um, I'm wondering if you could perhaps two things I'm really curious about. One is a more general observation for those of us here in Australia. What, what happened in the 48 hours after your story breaking was remarkable it was it was perhaps the best 48 hours Australia has ever had in in national media in the United States there was this rallying from the from the left to the right and everybody in between about how could you do this to an ally like Australia Um, and so I guess the first question out there is um, just to you know you're talking to an Australian audience today I think how visible is the alliance relationship that Australia has with the United States inside watching. I know day to day there's so much coming out of that White House. But just taking you back to that story and perhaps your reflections of its aftermath, what did you learn anything about the Australia-US relationship on the basis of that story and perhaps the reaction to it?
1: I, I did actually. Um it's interesting. You know, we hear so much about the uh American alliance with the UK. And, uh, and with some of the other Western European countries. And it, it, that's very natural and, and so forth. And, and you know we all know that Australia is an ally, but uh, there's the story of the phone call between Trump and Malcolm Turnbull, I think uh, led to days of coverage here uh, in, the, in Washington in particular, but all across the US about what exactly this alliance is with Australia and the extent to which we share uh, intelligence and rely on each other. Um, as part of that intelligence alliance and also the economic ties and trade ties between the US and Australia um, clearly people who who work in those fields are, are well aware of that but you know a lot of Americans didn't realize just how close these two countries were um, and and the ruptured phone call I think illustrated uh, for everybody uh, you know what the reality is and you know it's worth pointing out too that Trump patched it up with with Turnbull yeah. uh, in part, frankly, because Joe Hockey, the ambassador at the time, uh, you know, did a a pretty good job of of getting to know the the Trump administration and sort of figuring out how to navigate that that Trump world and and find ways to to bring them together. I'm forgetting the detail, but there was a a Greg Norman role, I believe, in uh, in bringing Turnbull and Trump back together uh, after the nasty phone call. So, Yep. Anyhow, it seems like everything 's fine now, but it was a it was a tenuous beginning for sure
0: it was it was It was a bit of a shock um, um, I was surprised actually at i don 't know about you, but um, the transcript actually read better to be honest than some of the readout and Trump hung up on i think the call ended abruptly might be a more accurate than than trump hanging up on on turnbull yeah um, the other thing Phil. Um, it's not that Trump got on that phone call and said, there's no way I'm doing this. It sounds to me, and I'd, I'd be, uh, I know it's a long time ago for you, but on, this, prisoner. Yeah, on the, on the, on the refugee, um, um yeah. detainees, um, deal, um, Trump knew he had to do it. He was mightily unhappy about it, but, and he wanted to complain about it long and loud, but, at the end of the deal survived, um, I think, is one of the other big takeaways yeah um, I'm just wondering if, yeah. if you know that got lost, i think in in the again like so many things in the spectacle and the the sheer
1: transgressive nature of and the interaction it's worth pointing out to that point that um, so many other world leaders saw the way Trump and Turnbull interacted in that call and the policy outcome, which is that the the policy basically stayed the same and took a lesson away from that, which is, you know, you've just got to let Trump vent sometimes. And, you know, he's not like a normal president. You, you get on the call, he'll be nasty and acrimonious, let him say his piece, do whatever you have to do. But behind the scenes, you can sort of work it out where uh, there's not actually a policy ramification. I can't tell you how many times Trump has, has said publicly you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, void that trade deal, or I'm gonna sue so and so or I'm gonna he, he makes threats all the time that he never follows through on. And a lot of foreign leaders figured out very quickly after the Turnbull incident, uh, how, how to, for lack of a better term, how to manipulate him, uh, so that they they, they don't have bad outcomes in their states.
0: That's a that's a that's a great observation. Um, I think that's spot on. I think, you know the, the the operative form of words has been you know actions not tweets um um but um look we're we're starting to 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 run uh short on time um uh, Michael Wadley um has been has been um throwing a lot of questions some of which I've I've already asked Michael without attribution um and and similarly uh Bruce Talkers on, on 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 with us today and and Phil uh Bruce Hawker is a uh Democratic uh sorry, Labour Party political consultant um here. Um and I just want to acknowledge their questions that I again that I asked um without without attribution, but but um but Michael um Michael asked about Pompeo, who actually yeah. appeared in Australian media here over the over the weekend. Um, 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 um commenting on the fact that an Australian state government um, has signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative um, and, um, and, and swung away at that pretty forcefully and has sort of certain garnered a lot of media coverage here. Um, but I'm just wondering about what is Pompeo's game plan? Um, do you know, I mean, there's been a lot of speculation that he... You know it seems like the clock is running out if he wanted to flip to a run for a senate seat um what is the do you have any insight about the game plan there
1: well mike pompeo is uh he's very smart uh he's pretty young relatively speaking in, in politics and he's very ambitious uh he He's a bit of an opportunist too. He, he found out, he, he was not a Trump supporter to begin with, by the way. He actually spoke out against Trump in support of Marco Rubio at his home state, Kansas caucuses back in 2016. But after Trump won the election, Pompeo got on the bandwagon right away uh, and saw this as an opportunity for him to advance his own career. He was sort of a backbencher congressman and right. suddenly became the CIA director. And he figured out how to work with Trump uh better than almost anybody else in the administration he knows exactly how to talk to trump how to manipulate him to Mm -hmm. some degree how to deal with his demands uh, and and ultimately now has become a secretary of state and and arguably the most powerful secretary of state that we've had uh, in recent times he is really dictating and driving a lot of the foreign policy of this government and, and, you know, there were moments, he's a little lower profile right now, but there have been moments where he was almost acting as the defense secretary, in addition to the secretary of state. He, uh, according to my reporting, he aspires to be president himself
2: oh, wow.
1: uh, and would very much like to run in 2024 or, or later uh, against President Trump. Not, I'm sorry, not against President <laughs> Trump, but after Trump leaves office. <laughs> <laughs> he he he. Along with like a lot of other people, including Vice President Pence and Nikki Haley, the United Nations right. ambassador. Um, but Pompeo has a long game here politically, and you know clearly he decided that the Senate was not for him uh, that he wanted to stay on as the Secretary of State. And if Trump wins a second term, perhaps Pompeo continues. Uh, perhaps not. If Trump is defeated, then Pompeo will have time to sort of go into the private sector for a while and 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 build a. platform to run for president
0: right um you're very curious about that and just very curious that um the u.n secretary of state would would do an interview on a on a cable news outlet here in australia on a um not the typical way we're used to seeing U.S. Secretaries of State.
1: Also curious, by the way, that the U.S. Secretary of State does does travel to Iowa and, <laughs> and all sorts of other American political hotspots. Uh, yeah. You know, he's, he's yeah. got a strategy underway. Yeah.
0: Hey, uh, this, will, this will have to be our last question. It's, it's a good one uh, from Glenn uh, Wright-Wick. Pardon me, I think. Uh, White-Wick, yes. Um, and Glenn asks, um, <clears throat> it's been interesting to see Obama become more public in his criticism in the last yeah. two weeks. What impact do you think this will have? And do we expect to see more engagement from past presidents?
1: Um, you know, Obama has been really interesting the last couple of weeks. <laughs> and I expect we're going to see a lot more from him. Um, at, you know, in, in the later summer and early fall, he is clearly going to be a surrogate for joe biden and you know it's worth keeping in mind that as divisive as obama was as the president and i i shouldn't say divisive i mean polarizing as polarizing as he was with the american electorate electorate when he was in office he is now um much more popular he's the most popular uh, political figure in in american politics right now and he's going to be out there with biden uh, either on the campaign trail or on Zoom or, or wherever the campaign trail is electronically <laughs> during COVID. Um, and I think that's a problem for Trump. And you see, that's one of the reasons why Trump keeps bringing up Obama and Obamagate and, and finding ways to attack Obama because he's trying to uh, put some chinks in that armor.
0: Sure. Um, well, that takes us to the top of the hour. Uh, and and boy, it, it, it does go fast, Phil. Um, I want to thank you. Um, so much for your time and, and putting a coat and tie on, on on a on a Monday night but as I said this that is, is what I wear at home every it's, day <laughs> it's half for the cost for Phil um, uh, um, um, and again I, I do want to echo Bruce's comments I I think the job of day-to-day journalism right now um is so important and and unfortunately the the president and his ability to mobilise people and, and the point of view, he's, the fact that he's making targeting of, of the media part of his political strategy um, makes your job that much more difficult, um, but actually makes the job you do all that much more important. And I thought uh, Bruce's observation on that was was absolutely spot on and appropriate. And I just want to end by seconding it and, and thanking you, Phil, for that service you provide and, and that of your colleagues. But importantly, for the hour you've given us tonight. And in, 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 wow. uh, in what would other, I hope it was uh, not, not too stressful and that you are well rested for what will be another crazy week
1: yeah. uh, in Washington. Well, thank, thank you so much. Um, I, I enjoyed talking with you and enjoyed uh, the questions. And uh, it, it's just really cool that we're able to do this from half a world away. So <laughs> thanks to everybody who tuned in, and, uh, and I really appreciate it. We'll
2: see you down here one day.
1: Take care. That'd be great.
2: Thanks, Phil.